Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Today we're going to talk about God's providence. This is the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever want to email me, you can do so at doctrine4, that's the number 4, doxology at gmail.com. Or I'm on Instagram at the real bear Martin. Now, referencing back to Romans 8:28, Paul writes as if Christians already know this. He says, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." So, although Paul was writing as if Christians should know this, it's just assumed we all know this. And truly, today Christians would affirm the truth in this verse. We rarely live as if it's the truth. Okay, so it, it, this is a really tough verse to to live it out. All right, so we would affirm that truth that that God is is working for the for our good, but we don't we we rarely live as if we really deep down believe that that's the truth. And so hopefully today's episode will encourage you and and deepen that belief in the providence of God. John Calvin said, There is nothing of which it is more difficult to convince men than that the providence of God governs this world. And B.B. Warfield says, A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly problems. Now, you may be asking, why are we talking about providence? If you've been following this podcast, you know we just got into the doctrine of creation Last week, and so why why are we seemingly jumping out of creation and some of the episodes that would go along with that and and talking about providence? Well, it's because creation and providence are closely linked. Martin Lloyd Jones says, "Quote: Creation brings things into existence; providence keeps them or guarantees their continuation in existence in fulfillment of God's purposes." The doctrine of providence does not just mean, therefore, that God has a foreknowledge of what is going to happen, but is a description of his continuing activity, of what he does in the world, and what he has continued to do since he made the world at the very beginning. So although we would never admit to it, again, sometimes Christians live as deist. We we affirm that God created the world, but we don't live in light of the fact that God is actively sustaining his creation and working out his plan. Again, it, it's not on the surface. We we would never it you know admit this, but we act as though God created the world and is now just kind of figuring out figuring it out as we go along, right? We must fight against this idea. We must remind ourselves there is not a plan B or or an audible with God. God does not call audibles. He created the universe with a purpose and he is constantly working out that purpose, okay? Now, the existence of God is under attack by non-believers, but even among professing Christians, the doctrine of God's providence is doubted. And, and why is that? Well, we look at the world around us, we see sickness and disease and wars, and then we ask, how could this be God's plan? How could God possibly be at the head of all this? If God is loving, why would he allow these things to happen? So often we cannot see God's providence because of our nearsightedness. We are so focused on our present troubles 
we cannot see the bigger picture. Surely the, the disciples thought the crucifixion of Jesus was horrible as it was happening. They, they were heartbroken and likely were questioning everything. But Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the most unjust event in human history is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was the most wicked murder ever committed, not because of the brutality of the cross, and, and the cross was brutal, but because of the one they crucified. Many people have been murdered, and those murders are terrible, right? But all of those people were sinners. Jesus never sinned. So they murdered a guiltless man, the Lord of glory, all right? So even in the most horrendous murder in history, the most unjust act of all time, the most wicked thing that has ever happened on this earth, it was according to God's providence. So when people question Christians about the existence of God, or especially this this idea of, well, how could God be all-loving and all-powerful and yet allow all these terrible things to happen? You point them to the cross. You point them to those verses in the Bible that tell them that the crucifixion of Jesus was according to God's definite plan. So I, I don't know why if someone was asking me this question, I don't know why some of these things in the world are going on, okay? I cannot explain them, but I can promise you it is not because God doesn't care, and it's not because he's He's not in control. God is not passive or idle with anything that ever happens in his creation. Now, God's providence can be believed in the present, Okay? It can be believed in the present, but is often only seen by looking into the past. John Flavel, along those same lines, he has this clever little quote. He says, sometimes providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backward. The importance of studying the doctrine of God's providence is to better prepare ourselves for the times that we may doubt God. It's basically laying a foundation, reminding ourselves of the truth of God's providence and how He works in His creation it is, is building up a foundation that we can stand on in, in troubled times. All right. Uh, now, also, before we really dive in, for related information about some of this stuff, also listen to the episode entitled God's Eternal Decree. So it's, I don't know, maybe maybe seven episodes back or so. It's not too far back uh, as you're scrolling through, but it's called God's Eternal Decree. So there's some some uh, some of the same material will be in that episode as well. So a doctrinal statement, if you will, or definition of God's providence. This is from a resource that I have called the Lexham Survey of Theology. And so that's a great resource on Logos Bible software. So I use that for basically all of my Bible study stuff. Wonderful software. Anyway, um, so this is from the Lexham Survey of Theology on God's providence. Quote, Providence is the governing power of God that oversees his creation and works out his plans for it. God not only created the universe, but he maintains it in being and directs it towards the fulfillment of his purposes. Creation and providence belong together as two sides of the same coin. Without creation, there could be no providence, but creation could hardly stand on its own. The God who made the universe also orders and governs it according to his will. End quote. 
Now, this word providence, let's let's break down the word here. Um, it's, it's two parts. There's a prefix, pro, which means before or prior to, and then the root of the word is from the Latin word videri, which means to see, okay? So pro videri is, is, is the, uh, the Latin there, and so it's to see prior to, to, to see beforehand. So if we simply just break apart the word providence into its parts, that's what we get, to see beforehand. Uh, but sometimes we do not get the full meaning of a word just by looking at the sum of its parts. Sometimes you can't just take a word apart and, and get the full meaning, right? So the doctrine of God's providence is more than God simply seeing beforehand what will happen with creation. It's more than that. It's not a passive seeing. God is not discovering things. Uh, also, one of the one of the guys in our small group class, he made a good comment. He said, this is kind of like God seeing things through. He is seeing to it that it, that it will happen. Um, and another thing about seeing in the Bible is seeing involves making judgments as well. And so God is is seeing his he's he has a purpose. He is seeing what is needed to accomplish that purpose and he is he is providing for those needs. And so a, a you know we have providence, we can see the word provide in there. Um, a word that's closely linked to that would be provision, okay? Um, if you if you break that up in the English, provision, again, that's to like to see beforehand. So um, so provision is linked with this word of providence as well. And so again, it does not simply mean that someone is seeing what happens beforehand. Rather, it means they are providing what is needed. Um, if if I uh, here's a great example. We did a feed the hunger thing at our church. And so the Feed the Hunger organization, they knew roughly how many people we were going to have and how many um, how many meals we were going to pack. And so when they showed up with their trucks, with the, the food to pack, they had provisions. They, they saw beforehand, or they, they judged beforehand what we would need, calculated that, and they had it there waiting for our, our group when we got to the church. So they, they made provisions for us to accomplish the task. So God has a purpose for everything, and in His providence, He supplies all that is needed for the completion of that purpose. Now, typically, when we talk about providence, there are three basic aspects of God's providence. And what I'm going to do is use the story of Joseph, found towards the end of Genesis, the story of Joseph to, to sort of detail out or, or give examples of these three aspects of providence, okay? These three aspects are preservation, government, and concurrence preservation, government, and concurrence. So first off, preservation. When I think of the word preservation, it's the idea of preventing something from going bad or or you know so so you preserve fruit jam and it keeps that jam from growing mold or yeast while it's being stored for later use. I also think about the preservation of land. In some areas the land is restricted from certain types of development in order to preserve it. Now preservation as it corresponds to God's providence is the Martin Lloyd Jones says, quote, the continuous work of God by which he maintains the things he has created. 
Okay, so God's preservation is seen in two basic ways. He preserves his creation and he preserves his covenants, his creation and his covenants. So as far as preserving creation, God is constantly upholding the universe. Colossians 1, 17, talking about Jesus, he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Also, God keeps everything in order, even the the rotation of the planets, the, the ordering of the sun, moon, and stars, God is the one keeping that in order. From a from an evolutionary standpoint, it is a false assumption to assume that the future will always be like the past. That is something that's not a luxury that evolutionists have because everything's just this this accident, okay? So we have the the big bang that happens. So you can't just assume that the future will be like the past. But as Christians, we can. God has designed and he sustains his creation with a certain order. Genesis 8.22 is a great verse on this, says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So a a blessing from God is actually the, the... the ordering of the sun, moon, and stars. It allows us to plan to grow certain crops during different times of the year. So God has has designed earth with a structure, and he is the one upholding and sustaining that, okay? So we can we can trust that those seasons will will come around. We can trust that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. God is the one behind all of that. Now, Psalm 104 is a beautiful psalm that merges both the creation and providence of God. Remember, as the Lexham Survey of Theology said, there are two sides of the same coin. And so just to bring out some of the verses in Psalm 104 about God's providence, verse 10 says, "...you make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills." Verses 13 through 15 say, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So, So in this verse, verse 14, it says, You cause the grass to grow. So you have to ask yourself, what causes the grass to grow? That's God. But at the same time, it, it, we have sunlight and all the, all the scientific processes that cause the grass to grow. Certainly those are taking place, but ultimately God is causing the grass to grow. So his, his providence is seen here in this psalm. So God certainly sustains his creation. He, his preservation is seen in creation, but also in his covenants. Nothing will break God's covenants. He will fulfill them. He sustains them. He preserves them. So in the story of Joseph, how can we see the providential aspect of God's preservation? Well, God used Joseph to save his family, which would be the future nation of Israel, from starvation. Towards the end of the story of Joseph, he is second in command over all of Egypt, and there's a great famine throughout the world, basically. And so people from all around are coming to Egypt for food. Joseph... uh, interprets a dream that God gave to Pharaoh, and so Joseph knows this famine is coming, and he's he's set things in place where they have stored up grain so that they can survive through the famine. So Joseph's family 
is uh, are some of the people that survive the famine because of this. So God is preserving this nation of Israel. He promised he would make Abraham a, a great nation. And so he's preserving. He's he's uh he's keeping his promises to Abraham in the preservation of uh, Jacob's brothers and and the family there. Also, God gave Joseph a dream that his family would bow down to him. And so throughout the story of Joseph, God is is at times it seems like Joseph's a dead man, and but God is the one preserving him and, and keeping him alive and putting him in certain situations that may seem horrible, but God is, is using that all along, okay? So God is preserving his covenants in the story of Joseph in, in those, uh, those ways. The next aspect of God's providence would be government. So Martin Lloyd-Jones d- defines this aspect this way. He says, quote, "...the continued activity of God whereby he rules all things to a definite end and object, and does so in order to secure the accomplishment of his own divine purpose." The main thing when we, when we think about the aspect of government, when we're thinking about providence as kind of the main heading— and then there's three aspects, preservation, government, and concurrence. When we think about government, we have to think of the word purpose or or the end, okay? There's a definite end. John Frame says that God's government is teleological, and that's from the Greek word telos, which is which is the end. Uh, another word that's that's linked to that, Jesus on the cross, when he says, it is finished, he says, tetelestai, it is finished. And so that that's where that that that's that word telos and so it it is god's government is is teleological it is focused on an end goal a purpose god has an ultimate purpose and he is always working out that plan now a little bit about this word government because it it it's sort of tainted in our modern 2024 uh, mindset when we think of the word government, but it is it is from the Latin word gubernare. And so, if you think about a a political race for governor, it, it's called a gubernatorial race, and this that's based on this Latin word gubernare, which means to steer, to drive, or to pilot. So, so gubernare, where we get this word government, it, it's this idea of a a captain steering a ship. And so a captain, he knows where he wants to go. And so he is plotting his course. He is he is steering the ship to, to get to his end purpose. And so in that way, God has a plan, and he will accomplish that plan. In God's providence, he is steering all of creation toward that purpose. A great reminder of, of this is Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 11, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God has an end purpose in mind, and he is always working towards that purpose. In the story of Joseph, how can we see the providential aspect of God's government? Well, God's orchestration of the events in in Joseph's life put him in the right place at the right time. Now, it would be impossible to see it in time. If, If you're 
if you're Joseph, it would be impossible to see all of the things that God is doing. But looking back, you can see God's providence. Remember, we can we can believe God's providence in the present, but tip, we only see God's providence by looking back into the past. So for Joseph, the story of Joseph, you have this caravan coming by as Joseph's brothers were trying to decide what to do with him. We have the cupbearer who was with Joseph in prison and remembered eventually uh, Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. I mean, so many things in the story of Joseph where God is working behind the scenes and putting Joseph in the right situations, okay? And so that is God's government. That's the aspect of God's government. Lastly, the the third aspect of of providence would be concurrence. Michael Horton's a theologian, and he defines concurrence this way. He says, quote, the idea of concurrence in theology refers to the simultaneity. So that's that's a big word. Think of simultaneous, okay? Refers to the simultaneity of divine and human agency in specific actions and events. So, concurrence, that, that's from a Latin word, which means to run together, okay? The, so it's the running together of the divine and human agency, uh, according to Michael Horton. So you have God's divine uh, plan, and you also have human decisions, and, th- and this is the running together of those. You could also uh, apply concurrence to, to others, not just human decisions, but all of creation, okay? And so concurrence is a, a word you hear a lot when you discuss God's providence and man's free will, or, or God's sovereignty and man's free will. Along with concurrence, you will, you will hear or read about uh, primary and secondary causes. So as sovereign Lord... God is the primary cause. We talked about this with God's eternal decree. Everything is moving along according to God's decree. God is never surprised. Remember, we talked about Jesus' crucifixion. It was according to the definite plan of God. So his plans are never thwarted. There, there is Again, there is no plan B with God. Now, sometimes in the Bible, it speaks of the Lord regretting a decision or relenting from a judgment that he had pronounced Without getting into a ton of detail, I would interpret those passages as as trying to show the reader that God grieves the the sinful decisions of man, um, and and also He is merciful. He he ha- he is in His wrath. He pronounces judgment, but He also shows mercy. So I would argue that those passages are not trying to teach us that that God is is regretting decisions He's made. That that would certainly not correspond with the rest of what the Bible teaches us about God. Uh, it is simply there to show us his grieving over sin and his mercy, in some cases, towards sinners. So with concurrence, God never has a plan B. He is the primary cause. Now, ultimately, his decree determines everything that happened. God is the primary cause and created things also interact, and these are the secondary causes. So uh, a few quotes here from some different theologians about this idea of concurrence, primary and secondary causes. Wayne Grudem says, quote, The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created thing, so that these things themselves bring, ab- bring about the results that we see. R.C. Sproul says, quote, We are creatures with a will of our own. We make things happen, 
Yet the causal power we exert is secondary. God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. He works out His will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. So in the story of Joseph, how can we see the providential aspect of concurrence? I think one of the the main verses in the Bible at when you're if you're wrestling with God's sovereignty and man's free will and if God's in control of everything and everything's according to his purpose then why are people guilty for rejecting God Th- those types of questions this is a key verse to study Genesis 50:20 this is Joseph speaking to his brothers he's second in command of Egypt now his brothers have come to him because of a famine in the land and they're and and they're scared that Joseph's going to have them killed And Joseph says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So again, this is is just a huge verse to understand. Notice the word meant, okay? It is used to describe the thought process of the brothers as well as God. It's the same word. The brothers had a purpose in mind, and they meant for their actions to be evil, okay? They had evil in their mind, and they, they had a purpose for that. They meant it for evil. But Joseph said, but God meant it for good, all right? So the, the, the verse does not say, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God turned it into something good. No, it said God meant it for good. In the same way that the brothers meant something for evil, God meant it for good. There was a purpose and God was working all along, okay? And so God is the primary cause. God's primary cause was good. The brothers were the secondary cause for Joseph being sold into slavery, and it was for evil. So the brothers are guilty of sin. God did not force the brothers to act this way. So God is Lord over all actions. He uses the actions of creatures for his own purposes. Never in Scripture are people excused from their sin because God, quote, made them do it, all right? With concurrence, providence, God's sovereignty, eternal decrees, election, predestination, simply rest in the truths taught in Scripture. And and here, Genesis 50-20, that's a, a key verse to meditate on if you struggle with some of those concepts. So uh, some questions, some objections that may come up with this idea of concurrence. Uh, the first one would be, does, does concurrence make God the author of sin? Well, concurrence is a word used to, dis- to try to describe a theological concept. The proper question here is, does the Bible teach that God is the author of sin? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. For the Christian, we must first affirm the clear truths taught in Scripture. We may try to use philosophy and logic to explain concepts, but our finite minds with our finite philosophy does not supersede the Word of God. So again, the Christian has the Word of God. Simply affirm the truths taught in the Word of God. Okay, and so the, it's very clear in the Bible that God is not the author of sin. Okay, now another 
question along with concurrence is, does concurrence make secondary causes pointless? Okay. Another way of saying it is, if God is the primary cause of all things, and all things happen according to his will, then why do we need to pray or share the gospel? Or, or you know, why do we need to do anything? And again, for the Christian, the answer is simply because the Bible says so. I, you know, you you don't have to try to um, use philosophy or logic to to reason out all of this stuff. We are we are simply obeying what God has revealed to us in His Word. For the secular philosopher, they may ponder all these different types of questions, but for the the Christian, ultimately, we are simply obeying the Lord. All right, and so we pray, we share the gospel because the Bible tells us to. Okay, now that you know, then you talk about well, what what authority does the Bible have? That's a, a different discussion. But there are reasons that Christians believe the Bible is the word of God, and so if the Bible's the word of God, then we rest in that. Okay, so that is that is the three aspects of providence, preservation government, and concurrence. And then, of course, we used the story of Joseph to kind of give some examples of those. Uh, Another great story in the Bible having to do with God's providence is the story of Esther. So just a little self-quiz, you know, if you're riding down the road listening to this or whatever, how, how can you see those three aspects of God's providence in the story of Esther, his preservation, his government, and, and concurrence, okay? Now, two other stories that I want to kind of link together in thinking about God's providence. The first one would be the sacrifice of Isaac, or the, the, I guess you could say, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. So this is found in Genesis 22, but the Lord tells Abraham, I want you to take your your son, your only son. Now, what's, what's important about that phrase is Isaac is not Abraham's only son. He also has Ishmael. But Isaac is the special son, the miracle child. Isaac is the one that the Lord said, through Isaac, I will make you a great nation. So, so Isaac is the, the child of promise. But the Lord tells Abraham, now I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac. And so how can we see God's preservation in this story? Well, again, God is not going to break his covenant with Abraham, and Abraham trusted this. Abraham throughout Scripture is a man of great faith. Genesis 22.5 said, and, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey while I, and the, while I and the boy go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. Now, typically I quote from the ESV, but here I'm quoting the Legacy Standard Bible because it brings out what is clear in the, in the Hebrew text, and that is that Abraham says, we will worship, and we will return to you. Now, God has told him to sacrifice Isaac. Yet here we have a statement that's implying Abraham's faith. He says that that Isaac and I will return back to you. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we get more information on Abraham's faith. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He considered, that is, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The, the last part there, figuratively, Isaac was raised from the dead, is because basically he, they're walking up that mountain, 
and Abraham is has is going to sacrifice Isaac in his mind. So it's a figurative resurrection, sort of symbolizes a resurrection in that Isaac was dead and then comes back alive. But Abraham was was had so much faith in God that God would preserve his would, would keep his covenant promise to Abraham that through Isaac that that Abraham would be a great nation. Abraham's considering, well, perhaps I'm going to sacrifice Isaac and God's going to raise him from the dead. So that's that's what's going through Abraham's mind. Abraham knows we we see a, a trust or a faith in God's providence and and specifically this aspect of preservation. He will preserve his covenant. Next, we have God's government. God has an end goal in mind. Remember, government, think about teleological, this end goal, this purpose in mind. God is steering the ship, right? And so in in God's government here in this story, where did God tell Abraham to go? In Genesis 22, 2, the Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the the Lord has a purpose for everything. He He's not just saying, go sacrifice Isaac. He, he The Lord says, I want you to do this in the land of Moriah on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God has a, a purpose in mind for this. And what is that purpose? Well, hang with me, all right? How can we see concurrence in the story of Abraham uh, and, and when he's told to sacrifice Isaac? Well, here we have Abraham. Abraham is a man of great faith. So Abraham's trust, his decision to to take Isaac and go up the mountain and, and Abraham's about to sacrifice him, that is that is secondary causes in all of this. And God of course is the primary cause. God has gifted Abraham with faith, but a, but Abraham also is choosing to trust God. Abraham made difficult decisions to trust God. We we know God was gracious to Abraham, and if you are saved, it is by grace through faith, okay? And these are the gifts of God. So I'm not saying that we are we are saved by our works. But we we don't need to cheapen the the immense faith of, that Abraham had. Ab- God called Abraham away from his hometown, away from his family to a land that God would show him, and Abraham in faith obeyed the Lord. God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and in faith he obeyed the Lord. And so, again, we don't need to cheapen the faith of Abraham. Yes, God is working in Abraham's life, but Abraham is also making decisions to to trust God and have faith in God. And so we there we we can see concurrence. Also, we have concurrence with Isaac. Isaac, God did not put Isaac in a trance, so he just followed Abraham wherever he goes. Isaac is submitting and, and obeying his father, Abraham. Uh, in Genesis twenty-two ten, it says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Isaac, the, the promised child, the miracle child, Isaac was obedient to the point of death. Abraham was about to slaughter him. And then the Lord provided a ram. All right. And and this is why I was thinking about this story when when you think about the idea of God's providence. It's this this 
concept of God providing, the Lord provided a ram for the sacrifice. So so the the angel of the Lord stops Abraham says, I, you know, I know that you trust the Lord, you've shown your loyalty to the Lord. And so and then and then Abraham looks up and there's a ram there. And so Abraham sacrifices the ram instead of Isaac. Now, the ram did not who provided the ram, okay? God provided the ram. But the ram did not just float down of heaven in some sort of supernatural cage, right? The ram was caught in a thicket. So again, God, the primary cause, God provided the the ram. But the secondary cause is this ram was wandering around and got caught in a thicket, okay? And so God is, is again, using creation. We This, this idea of concurrence here uh, is, is uh, clear in that aspect as well. Now, a little bit about this, uh, what Abraham names this mountain where he sacrifices Isaac. He calls this mountain Jehovah Jireh, and that's from the King, Dr- King James translation. So if you've heard of Jehovah Jireh, that means the Lord provides or the Lord will provide. So in Genesis 22, verses 13 and 14, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So when Abraham calls that place, the Lord will provide, in the King James Version, it just says Jehovah Jireh, which is just the, the Hebrew for the Lord will provide. Also a little footnote here, the word Jehovah the word Yahweh and the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's all the same Hebrew word. Uh, Jehovah and Yahweh are just two different ways of of pronouncing it. Um, Scholars nowadays think Yahweh is probably the correct way, but it used to be thought that Jehovah was the correct way to say the the Lord's name, and so uh, that's why you have those different words, but they all mean the same thing. Notice, too, that it's the Lord will provide. I think that's interesting. It's not that the Lord provided, talking about the the verb is not in the past. The verb is in the future. The Lord will provide. On On that mountain, the Lord will provide. That's an interesting name for that mountain. And that leads me to our last story where I want us to see God's providence, and that is in the crucifixion of Jesus. I've already mentioned a few of these things before, but how do we see God's preservation in the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, there were plenty of other times that people sought to kill Jesus. One example is in Luke 4. Jesus is is at the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and Luke 4:29 they were they were angry with him and it says and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst he went away so you have this this mob angry at Jesus they're going to throw him off a cliff and then he just like walks away, walks right through the middle of them, it, like they can't touch him. We, Luke doesn't give us a ton of information here, but that this just this is a a strange reading here. It's just like they're about to throw him off a cliff, and then Jesus just kind of walks away. See, he he is being preserved until the proper time. And John twelve twenty three. This is 
this is his, his his betrayal and crucifixion is just overhead. I mean, it's it's coming up. Jesus answered them, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." So there there was a specific time, and God was preserving uh, His Son Jesus Christ until that time. When we think about Jesus' crucifixion, I'm going out of order here on purpose, but the next aspect I want to think about is concurrence. With Jesus' crucifixion, Judas made the free choice to betray Jesus. Again, Judas is a secondary cause. Jesus was betrayed because that was the definite plan of God. Jesus was crucified because that was the definite plan of God. But the secondary cause would be that Judas betrayed Jesus, and the Jewish and Roman authorities were working to to execute him. So they're they're all guilty of those choices. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, the, the free choices of these men led to Jesus' crucifixion, but it was the definite plan of God all along. They meant evil, but God meant it for good. So that's concurrence there. And then again, I went out of order, but the government in Jesus' crucifixion, remember this aspect of government is teleological. It's focused on an end purpose. Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. This fullness of time is a is a wonderful phrase to meditate on as far as why did, you know, have you ever thought about that? Why did God send Jesus when he did? Of all the, the different times in human history, why did Jesus come when he did? Well, you have the Roman Empire that has conquered most of the known world, and they built roads so that you could travel back and forth. So this was a a premium time for messages to spread. The the roadway system was excellent. And because Rome was in charge of most of the known world, you had one government over all of that. Also, Greek was basically a universal language. Certainly Jesus spoke Aramaic and there there were, you know, parts of the world that had had their own languages that they spoke, but Greek was kind of a universal language that was used in trade and things like that. And you had the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew, the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament. So when the New Testament writers wrote in Greek, now you had the full Bible in in the common language of the day, and you had these Roman roads where the message could spread, and travel was was easier than probably it had ever been in human history. Also, you have Jesus was crucified during the Passover, and God had set it up where Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem for certain feasts. So you had a, a ton of people there in the city as as witnesses to all of these events. Now, if we go back to Abraham. Remember I said that God had a purpose in everything that he told Abraham to do, and he told him to go to the land of Moriah to sacrifice Isaac on one of the mountains that the Lord would show him. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, we read this, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. You see, the land of Moriah is the same region as Jerusalem. And on one of these hills is where Abraham took Isaac to offer him up as a sacrifice, where God provided the ram for the sacrifice in place of Isaac. 
Uh, okay, so that, that happened on one of these hills in the land of Moriah. Now, on a hill, I don't know if it's the same hill, but it's certainly in the region of that area, Jesus was led out to be crucified. In John 19, 17, it says, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Another little footnote here, Golgotha is the Aramaic word, Calvaria is the Latin word, and that's where we get our English word Calvary, okay? That's where Jesus was crucified. So Abraham said he called the name of that place in Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then John one twenty nine says the next day, he, he sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Isaac certainly represents Christ, the obedient son. And then God, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Okay. And so so Abraham is, is offering Isaac as a sacrifice. The Lord stops him and provides a sacrifice. But God offers Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins. And so God has a purpose in everything, in, in showing us uh, through this story of Abraham and Isaac, he has this happen on the same, in the same region that Jesus Christ would one day lay down his life. So on the mount of the Lord, the true Lamb of God was provided. Now, the doxology, this is called doctrine for doxology. We talked about the doctrine of God's providence. The doxology portion here, the worship of God in this, is to reflect on your own life. How do you see God's providence in your own life? Think about preservation, government, and concurrence. And so that's your uh, your homework, if you will, for this. In closing, this is a great verse about God's providence. Now, it's from the book of Lamentations, and this was written to express the immense amount of grief over the fall of Jerusalem in 586. But here, the the lamenter is expressing his, uh, his trust that God is in control of everything. Lamentations 3, 37 through 38, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Thank you.